You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. My name is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at Film at Lincoln Center. Today we're sharing a Film at Lincoln Center free talk, which was presented on the occasion of our new series, Make My Day, American Movies in the Age of Reagan. Film at Lincoln Center Director of Programming Dennis Lim joined writer Jim Hoberman for an expansive discussion about Hoberman's latest book, Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. The two discussed the relationship between politics and pop culture in the 80s and more. This new series, underway through this Wednesday, September 3rd, offers a chance to experience the 80s as seen through the lens of 24 unforgettable films, including The King of Comedy, Back to the Future, The Last Temptation of Christ, Robocop, The Terminator, Near Dark, and more. Save with two-for-one double feature pricing at filmlink.org. And let's go to their conversation now. Uh, good evening. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Dennis Lim, Director of Programming here at Film at Lincoln Center. Uh, and our guest this evening is the critic, Jim Hoberman. Uh, he is the author of the new book, Make My Day, Movie Culture in the Age of Reagan. Uh, Jim is also the guest curator of our ongoing series of the same title, um, which features double bills, American films from the 80s, um, pairings of some of the films discussed in this book. We have the book for sale, as you can see, uh, and Jim will be signing copies after um, our talk. Uh, the series runs through next Tuesday, so uh, many more films. Uh, this is a d one of our double feature series for the summer, so it's two-for-one pricing. Um, and uh, so let's start, Jim. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, putting the series together for us and for being here. Well, thank you for hosting it, and also for for using the the double feature format. Yeah, no, we've been doing that a lot this uh, this this um, summer, and I know you're a fan of of the double feature as a form. So we'll talk a little bit about okay. that too. Uh, so the the new book is is um, I think interesting in or significant in several ways. It's, it's the the concluding part of a trilogy. Is this culmination of um, the, the the two books that preceded it with a dream life. An Army of Phantoms, um, but I think it's also interesting that it's it's a fascinating companion piece to your '80s anthology, um, Vulgar Modernism, uh, and I think unlike the two previous books in the trilogy, this covers a period during which you were actually a working critic. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about just how that informed your process, you know, your, your approach, the way you thought about it, and also your research. Yeah. Well, in, in a way, it was the hardest book to, to write um, for me because uh, there's a certain incredible uh, um, uh, pleasure in, in, for me in revisiting the 60s in uh, um, the dream life since I was a young person then, you know, a teenager. And and um, it, that was just fun from beginning to end. And, and writing about the 50s was interesting in another way because I was researching things that I didn't really live through, but it was happening while I was very young. And, and um, uh, so that, that, was, that was, you know, a uh, kind of archaeological dig. But going back to the 80s uh, and, and reliving the Reagan period when I had already done this, um, as a professional 
presented certain problems, and I didn't exactly know how to go about it because uh, at first, because in, in the other versions, I in the other in the other, the other two books, I <clears throat> leaned a lot on um, uh, what contemporary critics had to say about these movies. I was what the, what the response was to them, and um, in the eighties, I knew what the response was because I had a response, and. So I had to figure out how to integrate myself into the book, which wouldn't have been my first my first impulse. Right. So when now that you know this is now three substantial books covering something like four nearly nearly half a century. Forty. Yeah. yeah. Um, when did you first did did you know when you started that this was going to be this decade spanning project? Well, not exactly, but I, you know, I, when I was when I was an undergraduate, I I read um, from Caligari to Hitler, mm -hmm. the uh, the Krakauer book, and it made a big impression on me. And uh, this is probably in 1968, and I was thinking it was around the time when I you know I had this this realization. I mean, thinking about that King Kong. Oh, this is a movie about slavery and imperialism. I mean. Why did that, you know? Why hadn't I known that? I mean, that kind of thing. I was having this sort of this realization about about American movies, and I thought, having read the Krakauer book, I thought, oh, you know, one could write a book, you know, from Strange Love to uh, uh, to Wallace or Reagan or worse, which you know ultimately happened. But but uh, um, <laughs> so I sort of had this idea, you know, as a, so Reagan was probably just Reagan governor was the then. governor of California, yeah. but I knew about him because. I had um, spent the summer of 1968 in uh, in Berkeley. Instead of going to Chicago, I went to, I went to Berkeley, which was, you know, which was much more fun. And um, you know, going to the movies then, in 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 you know, not to, you know, crossing tele to cross Telegraph Avenue to go to the Telegraph Repertory Cinema, you had to you had to sort of wade through an ongoing um, disturbance or, or or right every single night. And, um, you know, I was sympathetic, certainly, but I, I didn't want to see the movies. Anyway, I, I, uh, I developed a complete loathing for Reagan during this. I mean, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, he and, and, I, and I took it very personally. I mean, he, he campaigned against students. I mean, that was his whole, his whole thing then. And... Um, um, so that's how Reagan, you know, I thought that, obviously, I thought that, that, that and, he, and he already wanted to be president. I mean, that was, that was evident. So that's, I think that that's how he was in there. I mean, George Wallace was more of an immediate threat in, in 1968 than Reagan, but he had, he had uh, um, uh, you know, made his intentions known. And, and the, the interesting thing is, which this comes back to the introduction of the book, if, if, if you don't mind getting to that, is that... Um, in, 19, in the spring or summer of 1969, there was a wonderful show at the Museum of Modern Art curated by Lawrence Alloway called Violent America. And uh, it was just his view of, of sort of action films from the, uh, from the 50s and 60s. And I went to all of those because I was a student. I could, you know, had time to go to the movies all day if I wanted to. And um, that's where I saw The Killers. And I had no idea that Reagan was in it, really. I went to see it because it was a Don Siegel film. And, um, and there was Reagan. And I'd never seen, I knew that he had been in the movies, but I had never seen him in the movies. And, and if you've seen that movie, you know that he's, he's, he's fantastic. I mean, he's this, 
you know, uh, uh, this sort of arch gangster. I mean, he slaps Angie Dickens. He's just a terrible, terrible guy. And I had a very naive response to this. I mean, it didn't occur to me that he's acting. I mean, I thought, you know, <laughs> I said, why would he be in a movie that, that you know, got him to, to, to play what he actually hoped to become? I mean, to me, it was like some kind of strange documentary. So that also, <laughs> that, that figured into this uh, as, as, as well. And that was his last role, right? His last role, and I, and, and I, I never, you know, like, got over that. I mean, I, it, to me, it seemed like, you know, when he developed, I mean, there were also things you know, when he been wanting to politics. I mean, I understand that his voice was fantastic. I mean, that he had this radio voice and that he could, if he wanted to, he could play this sort of endearing, you know, grandfather, and, and, and people bought that. But to me, he was always the guy... In, in, in the killers, and, it, and it's like, it's like the, the Marlon Brando, it's like one-eyed jacks. You know, you may be a one-eyed jack in this town, but I've seen the other side of your face, and, and that was the killers, you know. You, you talk in your, the, I think it's in the introduction, you talk about this sort of, you know, re dawning realization that Reagan is sort of the protagonist of the entire trilogy. Can you sort of elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, well, originally, <coughs> I mean, I started thinking about this book when Reagan was, was president in the, in, the, in the 80s, and it came out of, a, of some courses I was teaching at NYU in the summer, which would be sort of seminars in contemporary cinema. So I was showing all these movies which I really disliked, but which I thought <laughs> had a certain, you know, like uh, were, were, were very now or very right. then. And uh, um, so originally I wanted to just do one book, that would sort of start in the 40s with Fort Apache and then work its way up to, I guess, Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that. And uh, um, it became apparent once I began working on it that it was just impossible to do this in one book. And so my editor at the time suggested that I just take one section. And of course, you know, as you know, you know, as a, as, as a writer, I mean, I always like to do the easiest stuff first. I mean, that's my <laughs> philosophy. So I figured, oh, I'll start with the 60s, you know, and do the, do the middle part. And, uh, you know, Reagan figured in that, but it wasn't really until I did the 50s and then was facing the, the 80s that I realized he was always there. Mm -hmm. He was just always around. And um, there really isn't anybody else. I tried to think if there was anybody else in, in American showbiz who had that kind of trajectory, and, and maybe you'll point that people who I'm, who I'm, I'm forgetting, but there seemed to be two. There was Frank Sinatra, who started in the, in the 40s and just kept going into the, into the 90s, and Jerry Lewis is, 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 is the only other one. And um, uh, Jerry Lewis, you know, for what it's worth, was like the first of one of Reagan's um, uh, Hollywood uh, posse, you know, his cronies, mm -hmm. to visit him in the Oval Office, which, you know, for what that's worth. <laughs> so, this you know this approach um, to reading popular cinema politically and ideologically, which you know you talk about Krakauer, so obviously it's it's it's, it's something that has existed. But I feel like you, I think of you, and I think a lot of people think of you as the critic who just who who sort of perfected it, who did it week week in week out at the Village Voice, you know, and um, and it also I think is um, uh, a way of talking about both film and politics, culture and politics today, and like looking at you know just the 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 intersection seems so natural to us now, but 
it, there is a sense, and I, I think it comes across in a book too, that when you started doing it, maybe it wasn't so. Maybe people didn't think this was necessarily like the most interesting or relevant way to look at things. Yeah. Well, certainly the polit the political writers at the Voice hated it. I mean, I got a lot of, but that was the Voice. I mean, that there would be a lot of, you know, it was a fractious place. And I should say, I mean, that that that's that's really very generous for you to 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 say that. I mean. From my point of view, it was a kind of, it was a sort of self-defense mechanism because I had been the second string critic at The Voice uh, behind Andrew Saris, and I was very, very happy doing that because I got to review whatever I wanted to, and I made up my own beat, and you know, there were all sorts of things that I was reviewing. And then, you know, Andy fell ill, and I, I had to, f to fill in for him for a certain amount of time, and I had to review certain, you know, big Hollywood movies, and... Um, I always thought that I would, if I, I could never be a daily a critic for a, a, you know, for a newspaper because I would lose my mind, you know, if I had to review this stuff all the time. And, and even at The Voice, I continued to mix it up. But, but my way of dealing with these movies was to look at them, you know, in a kind of political way. And also, it was sincere. I genuinely hated a lot of these films. And so, you know, it, it, it gave me a chance to, uh, uh, to vent. And... Um, you know, gradually I thought that the thing with Reagan was I had been writing about him. In, I, I went back when I was reading this book. I didn't realize that. I mean, I knew I had written something in The Voice in 1980, which had been turned down by High Times, believe it or not. They thought it was too scurrilous, you know, to do a movie, you know, a, a, an analysis of Reagan's movie career. But then I realized I had actually even done this before. In, 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 in the mid-'70s, I published something in the Berkeley Bar for which... I don't know if anybody knows, but for which nothing could be too scurrilous, you know, and about Reagan and, and as, as, as a movie star. And this was a very unpopular way to analyze him. Seemed like people thought this was very frivolous, uh, 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 political writers, you know, uh, how could, you know, so, so simple. And they didn't, I think that they didn't fully, that they didn't understand, that I didn't fully understand. It's not that the point was that Reagan was an actor in, in the movies, although, in my opinion, this was the high point of his life. I mean, this was my takeaway from the two crazy days I did doing research in the Reagan Library. That he and Nancy, this is nothing, I mean, being president was very nice, but, but nothing really was as good as being even a second tier star in Hollywood. I mean, you can't, you know. So it's not just that he was in the movies, the movies were in him. And I didn't fully realize that until I started working on this book. And that's what, if you want to call it, his political genius was to be able, and that's why he's like the, the, the epitome of, of Hollywood, in my opinion, because he was able to like take that sense, which was sincere, I feel. I don't think, I don't think he, was, he was cynical about that, and, and kind of sell it to the American people, get them, you know, like one last time, you know, to go to the movies with, with him. And, um, you know, so really... <clears throat> The, the uh, um, you know, the, the kind of analysis that was going on missed the point of, of Reagan. However, by 1988, after, after eight years of, of Reagan, everybody got it. And so if, you, if looking at the coverage of the 1988 um, campaign, you know, the Dukakis versus uh, Bush, I mean, just in, the New York Times sent Frank Rich and Maureen Dowd to, to cover this, and they both came out of entertainment journalism because by that time it was like it was completely everybody got it 
but initially there was all this pushback, you know, that, that, that it seemed trivial to talk about Reagan as a former movie star, as if that didn't make him the best prepared politician in American history, at least in the 20th century. So you, you talk about this book as like, you know, not, not exactly film criticism, maybe more of like a history, a, a, a kind of history, like, but a, you know, a cultural, political history. And I, I mean, I would recommend to people, you know, Jim's anthologies um, as sort of, I think, really the representative of the criticism and like the kind of films that you've championed over the years. But like in in the in the, in the, the films, the way you write about the films in this trilogy, I think it's it's um, a different kind of evaluation. Um, and you've already alluded to this a couple of times. I think in this volume in particular, there are a lot of not very good films. And um, can you talk a little bit about the process of, of writing and revisiting these? I, I actually think, think we did a pretty good job of like um, culling some interesting work for the series. Yeah. So we're not showing like bad films in yeah. this, this series. They are films yeah, yeah. that I think hold up in, in, in fascinating ways. But um, there are a lot of films in here. And this was in like, a, a, as you say, a in, in some ways a pretty you know, dismal period for the mainstream American cinema. And it got worse, I think. But well, yeah, this is the beginning of the <laughs> but, end, you could yeah. one might say, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that that uh, for me, you know, the um, uh, the fifties was still a period when <laughs> when there was a lot for me to discover in um, uh, working on that. A lot of a lot of interesting movies. That's really like the end of classic Hollywood in a way, although it, although it's changing. Um, and that, and the '60s, I mean, it's I can't be entirely objective because I was like, you know, what do they? Could the French have you know the age of movie going? I mean, I just you know, was was seeing all kinds of things. And but I do think that the the late '60s and the and the early '70s, this period that 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 has become somewhat fetishized, is fascinating because the system broke down and all kinds of things were 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 possible. But by the '80s. Um, it had really become um, atrophied in a way. It's not just the blockbusters. It's, it's the absence of a kind of um, secondary or tertiary mode of filmmaking. I mean, th throughout the 60s, you still had, I mean, you know, uh, the 50s and the 60s, you had great westerns. I mean, there were genres that, 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 that were viable and that enabled people to produce um, very strong work, sort of below the, you know, operating below the radar because not that much attention was being paid to them by the studio. I mean, Westerns would make money no matter what. So you could really, I mean, so they could be really terrible or they could be kind of experimental. But um, by the 80s, that's not, that's not possible. So you, a lot of, you know, Hollywood just isn't as, as rich. And, um, uh, you know, I, what I learned as, 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 a, as a critic, you really have to take what, what comes and, 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 and make, something, uh, make something out of it, you know, bring something to it. So that, that was my feeling about the, um, uh, the 80s. And, and, and there were, you know, certainly some excellent movies that, that were made then, but it's not, you know, it's not like you're being inundated with excellence. And in rewatching some of these films that your estimation of any of them change in significant ways or uh you know in, in in minor ways i mean the thing the movies that i that i that i hated then i still hate um <laughs> i i didn't change there were movies that i was 
more you hate it for ideological or aesthetic reasons or well you know i i can't really separate these things yeah. i mean um i can say that to take one which i i had this experience teaching this film in a hostile way and sort of like seeing these 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 students be some of them anyway being like really stricken i mean something like something like like uh, close encounters of the, of the, of the of, you know, I'm not going to call that a badly made movie. It's a wonder. It's it's extremely well made movie. It's a very clever movie, and and um, it has a lot going for it. But I just hate the way that it was made, and 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 hate the uh, um, the gist of it, and hate so many things about it. You know that that um, I'm never going to be able to get get beyond that. I mean, there are there are movies. You know, I had this. Certainly, there were movies in the in the in the fifties and and more in the 50s than in the 60s, but there were movies in the 50s that I found ideologically objectionable, pro almost everything, I guess. But, <laughs> but I still admired as, uh, as, as, as movies. But in the, in the 80s, that became harder to do. And then there were movies that just strike me as, as terrible movies. I mean, you know, Top Gun, to me, is just, it's just like a terrible movie. I mean... And um, probably even has his defenders by now. Well, yeah. yes, because of, I know this whole thing vulgar or, or you yeah. know, like autourism and, you know, Ridley, uh, the, the Tony, Tony Scott. Scott. I, know, I know, but, you know, I, you know, like I'm a moldy fig. I mean, to me, you know, it's just like, <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know I, I didn't go along with that. There are some things like, like The Running Man, I think that I appreciate more now uh, than, than I did then. Uh, Salvador, I'm willing to cut you know, like uh, um, Oliver Stone, a lot more slack in that movie because it was such a gutsy movie to make, mm -hmm. I think. And at the time, it was, you know, like I was saying, well, of course you should do this. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't like I was into giving, you know, like additional credit for, uh, you know, why didn't you do more, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that. But, um, and then there were movies that I, that I uh, well, I loved Blue Velvet then and, and still now. Uh, the Jonathan Demme film, Something Wild. I think I overrated it then. Um, you know, it's, but, it, but basically I didn't, I didn't change uh, yeah. my attitude too much. There were no like dazzling rediscoveries for me. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Close Encounters and I, 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 um, I always, especially have always loved reading you on Spielberg. Um, <laughs> so I really, one thing I love about the book is how he's a, a key supporting character who runs through a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. See, up until a point. I mean, uh, then he's he's sort of. I think I I think I, I drop him after uh, uh, Indiana Jones and the and, right. and the Temple of Doom, which just you know is you know rock bottom. But and then and then <laughs> something something happened though. Very interesting. You know, like Spielberg Spielbergism, as I used to write about it, developed its own. You know, there's a, uh, something dialectical happened there. For example, Gremlins is a movie that I liked then and I, and I still like. Uh, because uh, Joe Dante, who, um, you know, is a guy with a, with a, with a you know, he's with, with, a, with a political perspective, mm -hmm. I mean, in, 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 in his movies, was able to be at once part of the Spielberg movement and also, you know, satirize it somehow or subvert it at the same time. I was, I, you know, was very impressed with that. And, you know, and Spielberg himself liked the movie, which says something about him. I mean, maybe I didn't give him enough credit, you know, as for being, you know, a generous producer, uh, that he would have gotten uh, Gremlins when it's, 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 it's such a savage film in some ways. And I also think that um, the early James Cameron films, um, 
you know, uh, uh, the Terminator and Aliens pick up on something that's implicit in, in Spielberg Lucas. I mean, this kind of comic book filmmaking, which of course now is like uh, the thing that I feel you know, most thankful for having, you know, like lost my job as a film critic, that I never have to like <laughs> go to any of these movies or have an opinion about them. You'd be able to distinguish the good ones from the bad ones. But, but Cameron initially, uh, you know, when he, um, uh, you know, made these first movies, they're kind of Spielbergistic too, but with a different attitude. I mean, he was, you know, doing this pop uh, comic book Stuff, but it was uh, it, it was is much much screwier and much you know kind of edgier, crazier. I mean, you can even say that that's true of the fly, you know, Cronenberg. Although I think mm -hmm. that Cronenberg brings his own. He predates Spielberg in his his interest in in genres and so on. And and you know, to my mind, he's much you know like um, uh, sort of more profound yeah. film thinker. But but there is that aspect there too of using these the, the genres uh, in a way that. Um, uh, was made viable by Spielberg Lucas. Mm. So I think to come back to Reagan, um, were there, you, you already touched a little bit on this, I think, but like were there certain things, you know, certain insights, certain perspectives on him that emerged in, in, in the research, in the writing of the book? I mean, you, obviously a figure who loomed large in your a big part of your adult life and your professional life, but you know obviously there was a pretty intensive research process. You went to the Reagan Library, I assume, and yeah, it's like a shrine. I mean, <laughs> the Reagan Library. I don't know if anybody's ever. I mean, I guess you know it, it would be <coughs> probably most interesting for you know like you know <coughs> an ethnographic kind of uh, uh, research. I mean, what I found out in in, the, in this library, this that I, I don't think that presidential libraries are there. To, to help you learn things. I think they're actually there to keep you from, from ever learning anything. <laughs> but what I, what I did find out in the Reagan Library, which it is a shrine, it's on the top of a hill, and actually I was right, I was there very soon after uh, uh, Nancy Reagan passed. And um, they're both buried there. And, and I was, I had already, you know, had my ticket to California, I was, you know, I was, I was going to be out there, and I, I was, you know, dreading the fact that they were going to shut the, the library, that, you know, that it would somehow be in its, in its period of mourning, and I wouldn't be able to do the research there, but it did work out, but there still were, like, incredible banks of flowers strewn around her grave and so on, and it's a little bit like, <clears throat> like Disneyland, because if, if, you, if you've ever been there, you know that there are these sort of encephalitic Disney creatures wandering around, you know, like Mickey and Donald, you know, and they want to engage, they want to talk to you. And it's the same thing in, the, in like in the Reagan library. There, there are these minor people from his administration, they're just there hanging out. And if you're doing research, they'll, they'll want to talk. And, and nothing they could say, I mean, I did talk to a guy who had been, uh, I don't think he was the, 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 the ambassador to the Soviet Union, but he was, he was somewhere up there. And, you know, I did try and have a conversation with him. You can't really find anything out. First of all, you know, he was elderly, and it's not like he, you know, was remembered. But he did tell me one thing which was really great, which I then got verified. I asked him, well, when Reagan, you know, met Gorbachev, did, did, uh, did, did he want to see any movies? Did you show him any Soviet movies? He said, no, but they put together like a Gorbachev clip reel to show him, which I thought was interesting. So he could watch Gorbachev in the movies. 
And, uh, um, and then I said, well, did you ever see any movies with him? And he said, no, they didn't like to, to watch movies with people. And this was really fascinating to me. This was a key thing that uh, Ronnie and Nancy would spend almost every weekend when they could at Camp David. And they would, they would you know, program movies. And I'm sure they picked the movies out themselves. I mean, you know, who, would, who, who could program for that? They were, they were of that realm. They were Hollywood people. And they knew what they wanted to see. And uh, they would watch the movies together, you know, like eating popcorn. And their staff would sort of be there, you know, around them. But they did not use these movies as a social um, occasion, as other presidents have, have, have done. And so for this reason, I found his movie-going um, fascinating to, uh, uh, to track. And you can. It's all, you know, they, you, can, you can find every movie that he saw, maybe. I mean, there may be some things that he left out. Um, and he, he would sometimes make notes on them, never as much that I, as I, I always would have wanted more. I mean, I would have loved to have known what he thought about these things because they were looking at movies in a way that no other presidential couple ever could have. And it's not just that their friends were in them or that they were in them. <laughs> they understood something about them. They were professional. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that I took away from it was, <clears throat> this goes into what I, what I said before about it being like the sort of the high point of their lives. I mean, they were members of the Academy. They stayed in the Academy. They kept up with all the, you know, mainly like the Warner Brothers stars. He kept up with them. They sent them birthday telegrams. He would call them sometimes. I mean, they felt part of that community and, and, and they didn't, you know, lose that. And, and, you know, people sometimes say, oh, Reagan, you know, all he wanted to do was talk about his old movies. But, you know, I, I began to understand why he would want to do that. I mean, that was his way of apprehending uh, the world. When he saw something, I mean, you know, a funny one is they did have a kind of a state screening for E.T., uh, you know, with the cast and crew, you know, and all these people, Spielberg and, you know, uh, there. And um, the next day, he, he had a, a, he took a meeting with NASA. It's like he saw a movie about extraterrestrials <laughs> and he wanted to, like, find out some more about it. I mean, you know, he, when he saw the movie Dust Boot, um, you know, the German submarine film, which was like a very, very successful movie, probably was the most successful German movie maybe ever, certainly at that time. It made him think. He wrote in his diary, he said how strange it was to, to see a movie and to be, to sort of like empathize with these, with, with your enemies. You know, it's laughable, but it's also really profound that that's how he got that. From the, he, he looked at a movie, the movie moved him, you know, manipulated him emotionally, and, and something happened. And I'm convinced that this is what, you know, this is the roots of Bitburg. Mm. I mean, he saw, you know, like somehow these Germans as, as and also, what was, uh, I think it was Cole, you know, like, uh, uh, did him a super amount of favors. So there, there, was, a, there was a big favor bank there. Um, <clears throat> so the, the other thing about, about Reagan that, uh, you know, and, and they're really a couple. Too. I mean, it's really Ronnie and Nancy. I mean, they were, you know, like doing all this stuff. They were extraordinarily close. They spent, they, they had like a kind of studio or something in the White House because they did a lot of videos, you know, that would be distributed. I mean, they didn't feel like going out and making uh, speeches, you know, for every Kiwanis Club or Young Republican. I mean, you know, they would, they, would, they would cut a little video, you know, and send it out there and people would be thrilled. Um, so, uh, they spent what it seemed to me from the research I was doing the better part of a month working on a video for Lou Wasserman 
to celebrate, I can't believe it, could it have been his 50th anniversary in show business? I mean, maybe. I mean, this was in the late, late 80s. I mean, maybe he started, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the 30s. And they spent a lot of time with that. And the whole thing is, Lou, Lou, we love you. I mean, it's so unctuous in a way, you know, like how great Lou is. You know, at this point, Lou was not only, you know, like the leading fundraiser in California for the Democratic Party, he was under sustained attack by, uh, 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 you know, uh, Christian fundamentalists because they blamed him for the last temptation of Christ, which is the reason, incidentally, that the last temptation of Christ is in, is in this show because, you know, people have forgotten, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the furor around this movie. And, and you know, they, they didn't direct... The anger was not directed at, at Scorsese or, or Paul Schrader or Nikos Kazantzakis, who wrote the book. The anger was directed at Lou Wasserman, who was the, was the head of Universal. I mean, they were picketing his house. You know, they were, you know, like staging things outside, you know, with like uh, uh, people like uh, uh, crawling in front of his house in, in I mean, I'm laughing, because what else can you do? I mean, in, in front of his house in Brentwood or wherever it was, with a, with a cross, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, it, it was this, so th this to me was like a, a foretaste of the 90s, you know, the culture war of the 90s. But, you know, the Reagans were completely, they didn't care. They did, he was, had been their agent. I mean, you know, how could they, you know, they didn't care that he was a Democrat. They didn't care that he, he made this, uh, this movie, which their, you know, their fundamentalist base was up in arms about. You know, they had a closer tie with him. So this to me was like really, uh, fascinating. And the other thing I'll say is that, and this is very hard for me to say because I, you know, I hated Reagan so much. And still, I think that, you know, I saw the Roy Cohn documentary and I figured I was much too nice to Reagan, you know, just looking at all these characters. But um, <coughs> the, uh, uh, the movie that maybe some of you remember, uh, The Day After, um, you know, the, the, uh, um, the nuclear, the, sort of the ultimate disaster film was a made for television shown in 1983, the, the administration took that very, very seriously. They regarded that as a political act. And, um, uh, you know, they were really afraid of, you know, like the, uh, uh, the Friesnicks, as they called them, you know, and not getting to have the, uh, uh, the cruise missiles uh, or whatever the, I forget which missiles, but in, in Europe and so on. And, and Reagan saw it, and it actually made an impression on him. I mean, again, he saw, you know, like a movie about the end of the world, you know, and, uh, you know, he sort of thought about that, but in these crazy, you know, sort of like fundamentalist terms, you know, of like, but here he saw a practical movie at the end of the world, and it, and, and it impressed him, and I think that that had something to do with, despite the fact that he was like ramping up the Cold War, and being at a warm, as, as his willingness to, to uh, um, negotiate with Gorbachev. To come back to something you, you mentioned, I think this is actually really one of the most fascinating aspects of the book is how you focus not just on movie culture in, in Reagan's in the Reagan era, but Reagan as a movie viewer uh, is is I think such a rich and productive like sort of strand in the book, but how you this is all sort of arranged along this timeline and which you intersperse with events in his life and world events, you know, like by, and, and you already touched on a few things where like it was, where there was just these startling maybe realizations of what he was actually watching and what was going on in the world around him. And of course, like we were, we were not aware of that at the time. So were there other things? I, th I mean, there are a few things like I remember, like the f that he watched the fan, 
Yeah. It's also like Who can explain really that? Strange, like after. Yeah, he watched the fan. He watched Being There. Being yeah. There is the first right. movie he sees after yeah. you know uh, the he survives an assassination attempt. I mean, <laughs> whose idea was that? And and the fan is even more incredible. But I, you know, the the fan is a is a that I guess that was too trashy to show. Who knows if it even still exists? <laughs> But the fan, in case you, in case you forgot, is a is a movie starred Lauren Bacall as a is a is a, a star who's being uh, plagued by a hostile stalker, you know, like the the nightmare stalker who actually wants to kill her, um, and you know the book was found when 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 the FBI searched John Hinckley's room after uh, they brought him into custody. They found that book. He had read that book, and uh, and then there was a, it was turned into a movie. And the the um, the studio I forget which one it was was so nervous about this because um, they of course associated it with uh, not with um, Hinckley but with uh, Chapman, the guy who who killed John Lennon, and so they came up with some sort of trailer to like kind of like distance themselves from it. Anyway, it was a it was. You know, probably, I can't remember, they're kind of a trashy movie. I know that the Reagans did not like disturbing films. I mean, he was afraid of showing Bronco Billy because uh, 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 Clint Eastwood dies at the end. And, uh, and, and, and Nancy had just lost her father, you know, and so he thought this would be too upsetting, you know, to have a show a movie where Clint died. So they're looking at this, at this trashy movie you know, where about somebody who's like trying to assassinate, you know, like a, a, a celebrity, and they probably hated Lauren Bacall. I mean, politically, she would not have been, you know, on their side. But, but um, I don't know. It's just a mystery. That that, and that's I feel, you know, like why wasn't somebody taking notes? Because they would have said something. They would they would talk about these movies. It's not like they watched them in silence and then you know like uh, went back to their cabin in, in Camp David. They, you know, they talked about them. Um, let's talk a little bit about the the series um, and sort of your decision to sort of these the the selection that you made and also the the idea of pairing them. Um, maybe we can talk about one one pairing that has proved, I think, especially popular and people are really interested in this. And I think it's the one that's selling the best and pe people are talking about it the most is the Last Temptation of Christ and They Live. Okay, <laughs> that's kind of a conceptual. Pairing. And, and I would say it was it was like it was like it was like my request, your decision, to, to <laughs> but but for which I thank you. But but um, uh, the, the the short. Um, I mean, my thinking about double bills is that is that uh, I, I when I was reviewing, I love to review two movies at a time to find a good a good combination and teaching when I could. I like to show. Uh, um, uh, double bill, sometimes by superimposing the movies, actually, when I could get away with that. But um, because I felt that it was, it's not exactly like it's automatic writing, but it's very stimulating, very stimulating to have the, have two movies. They, it's like they talk to each other. They, they, they make you see, you know, like certain, you can, you can intuit certain connections, and then you can really see connections when you see them together. Um, I don't know if that's dialectical. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure, but it, but it's, but it's certainly it's an enriching way, I think, to to experience movies. And of course, it was something that was done 
it's a commercial decision that was made during the 1930s in the, in the Depression, you know, to give people more for their money, and I'm always for that. Um, so with, uh, with, the, with the two movies that you mentioned, I mean, first of all, they're coming at the end. And um, I felt that, um, to start with, that uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, as I said, was like a sort of look into the future. I mean, this is something that really began to happen in the 90s with Clinton, you know, this really virulent culture war. But it sort of erupted then. And uh, um, so I thought that that was significant. And it's the end of uh, uh, Reagan's uh, term. And, and, you know, there was an attempt to link Dukakis among some of these uh, 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 evangelicals, you know, to link him to the last temptation of, you know, to get this, somehow bring it all together, you know? So, I mean, it, it, it did have that political thing. And then the, the John Carpenter movie, which, which actually is in theaters when uh, uh, Bush is elected president, and there's no missing the point of that movie. I mean, it, it's, it was so, so, um, Satisfying for me as a as a critic to have that movie to write about. I mean, this thing just came out of out of Holly so utterly unambiguous in its in its attack on Reagan and, and Reaganism, and um, you know it was very popular its first week. It actually was the number one movie, and, and then after the election, it just it just disappeared. You know, after Bush was elected, it just it just it just it just vanished. But you know, like showing them together, I see that there are certain. There's a whole religious thing that's going on in the, um, uh, in, the in in in, uh, in in they live, and um, uh, that works. But you know, it it was uh, my my main reason was that they 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 are, you know, one's anticipating what's going to come. One is sort of looking back when it's kind of too late to have uh, done anything about it, and. Um, you know, they both have their supernatural elements. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, and then we can um, open it up to the audience. Um, one thing that is sort of hard to, to not think about as you're reading the book is the present day, which is something you you touch on only very briefly, I think, in, in so at, at, the, at the very end of the book. Um, but this is a book about the relationship between entertainment and politics, it's a book about a president who comes from popular culture. So it's, it's really, you know, it's, there is a specter <laughs> over this. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, you were writing this, you started writing this before. Well, I think it was during Obama's, the end of Obama's first term is when I actually started writing this. Although okay. it took me forever because I had to make a chronology, the chronologies are the hardest thing. Yeah. yeah. But um, certainly I was doing most of the writing while Obama was, was president, and um, the end after the uh, uh, the 2016 election, and um, so I certainly was thinking about Trump a lot um, while I was finishing the book. I have to say that um, uh, I personally did not see Trump coming, and um, uh, I blame that on two things. One. Uh, I blame it on the Village Voice because, you know, I mean, uh, in my world, in, in my bubble, I mean... Anybody who read the Village Voice... That's right. Know. I mean, Trump was, you know, like this grotesque creature, you know, like a con man and a blowhard and always going bankrupt, you know. And I mean, just, you know, it, it just was, was so evident, you know, that, that what this guy was, 
And, uh, and I recommend to you, if you want to cry, you know, read, read Wayne Barrett's book on, on Trump. I mean, it'll, it's, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> you know, you have to think that if the rest of America was reading The Voice, this never would have happened. But, so I blame The Voice, you know, for, for that. And the other thing is that I never saw um, The uh, Apprentice or The Celebrity Apprentice. I had no idea. I mean, my idea of Trump was this guy, this character in The Voice. And so I had no notion of how America would have, have seen him. And uh, so consequently, you know, I was caught completely by surprise. I mean, uh, as soon as Trump was there, I was like right away, like figuring out like how is this, you know, like connected to, uh, to Reagan and so on. And I wrote some things about it, which then got incorporated in, into the end. And, um, you know, when I think about my, you know, I, ideas like a 19-year-old, you know, from Caligari to Wallace or Reagan or worse, that <laughs> we did get something worse. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, Reagan was, uh, was Hollywood. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, of negative things about that. But, uh, you know, one could say that the basic, you know, that, that Hollywood believed in happy endings, believed in, in you know, like a, a sort of bringing together disparate groups of people, however imperfectly, uh, they they did that. There was a kind of desire to make a consensus, and you know there were there there were the, there were these things which, um, however simple-minded, uh, were integral to, uh, uh, to to Reagan's view. And you know he was cheerful, and 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 Trump, who was post Hollywood, has none of that. And um, you know it, it's not just that that Trump comes out of reality TV and, and, and you know, out of the, uh, the internet, I mean, these, these other things that are around there. It's his whole mindset. Um, you know, for any other president, a uh, 40% approval rating would be pretty terrible. But, but, you know, but Trump understands ratings. A 40% Nielsen rating is fantastic. So, and, and it, it's, it's funny, and it's probably stupid that he sees it that way, but he's not wrong. He, he understands something about show business, and it's, it's that, you know, he's a showman. And um, I, I don't know, Dennis, it's just, you know, it's, uh, the whole thing is so painful, but, uh, um, you know, that's, that's what I put in what I thought in the, in the, uh, uh, at, at, the at the end of the book, dealing with, with Trump, and also dealing with this, the fact that Reagan was much more popular in the 90s uh, than he was uh, leaving the presidency. I mean, people liked him personally, but he wasn't really regarded as this, you know, the, the second coming of, uh, of uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln or anything like that. I mean, he was rated about as well as, uh, as, as Jimmy Carter. And, uh, um, uh, you know, actually the first Bush, you know, people thought more highly of in, in some respects. It's the 90s when, when Clinton kind of is also the avatar of Trump, too, I must say, you know, in, in like bringing together show business and, and politics mm -hmm. in this other way, in this very tawdry uh, fashion, you know, um, when all news is really entertainment, which wasn't true with, um, with Reagan, uh, that, um, you know, Trump, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Trumpism, develops and um, you know uh, anyway that's
you know. So I have to I have to end the the, the book on kind of a down note. I realize. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know that I have optimistic yeah. <laughs> questions, but I, I guess another way to, to to put that question is, you know, the the what you think about as you read the book is also what has changed since. Um, and I think the reason your you know your approach works so well for these books is because movies were central. You know, you can't you could read movies as like you know some kind of like collective unconscious. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know. I wonder, could you have written this book about the Clinton years? Could you? I mean, Trump. I mean, I don't even know. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have wanted to. I mean, yeah. there is a there is a collection of my 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 stuff, uh, the the Magic right. Hour from the right. '90s, which does deal with with uh, the Clinton period and and movies. But no, I wouldn't have wanted to write a whole book. But I really just wanted to focus on the Cold War, and then I I realized that that Reagan, you know, when he ends that, or when it ends, you know, and he's a he's a you know. A player in 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 the end of the of the of the Cold War since he doesn't really end it, um, that 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 a lot of things ended along with it and 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 one of them was the um, the centrality that, that that Hollywood had. Something that I would say that I thought of actually, just I didn't think of this <laughs> while writing the book, but I learned this from watching a double bill. Um, this, this was the, the the double bill of the King of Comedy and, and Videodrome, two movies which I really like a lot and um, uh, thought were uh, uh, really just very smart movies. And you know, there's something that occurs to me whenever I see an old movie and I see a phone booth in it, and I'm thinking, what do people think of this now? I mean, this is something that you know, I mean, phone booth. It's it's really it's like it's like it's like worse even than when you look at those '30s movies and they're like talking. You know, the phone has to you know like the handle <laughs> stuff. Like, phone booth. What is that? You know, and um, um, so a lot of these movies, you know, from the '80s. I mean, they're they're you know they're so old, they're so dated in terms of the technology. But Videodrome and The King of Comedy seem to me to be like absolutely current. I mean. The fact that they're 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 about television, but they could just as easily be about about the internet. They really could be. They have not lost anything, and uh, I found I found that 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 remarkable that um, that these filmmakers could be so prescient, or they could tap into something which was which had not yet blossomed, but which would, you know, some decades later. Yeah, I mean, I've even I mean, even Trump has a medium, right? So it's it's not it's not. Uh, yeah. Cinema, but you know, I think it's yeah. uh, the point is that it's always been about mastering yeah. a medium. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. His his star on Hollywood Boulevard, not uh, yeah. That's the well. <laughs> um, all right. So I think we have time for a few questions, uh, and we have a microphone. So let's start over here. Um, I'm curious if there's a film that you would have screened for Reagan, given that he was apparently so susceptible to them. That is a very good question. Um, I've tried to think. I, you know, it's funny. I, I noticed that uh, he did look at the King of Comedy, probably because his pal Jerry Lewis was in it. But it uh, would have been interesting to watch Videodrome with him, <laughs> I think. Um, you know, I mean, he, he didn't like harsh movies. I mean, I don't think that he, he, he liked Arnold Schwarzenegger personally. But I don't think he ever watched any of his movies, and um, you know he probably was unwilling to watch uh, uh, Stallone's movies. But he did look at things like 
what is that uh, Sidney Lumet movie? Oh, oh um, no, no, no. I, he might have looked at that, but he he did look at. Uh, it's not running, running on empty. empty. He looked on running on empty. I would have been curious to see, you know, know what he thought of thought of that. You know, he had his own sense of like parent children, you know, sixties and things. But I don't know what I would have what I would have shown him. I don't know if I could have, you know, um, I, I, don't, I don't. Frankly, I don't think I could have related uh, to, uh, to to him. I mean. I, I, I was an undergraduate at, at the State University of New York when um, Nelson Rockefeller was the governor, and uh, he came to the campus for some reason, and he was glad-handing the students, and uh, he was shaking hands with people, and he and he uh, um, uh, wanted to shake hands with uh, uh, with my girlfriend, and she just like turned away; she wouldn't shake hands with him, and I was always very proud <laughs> of her for that, and so that's the you know. Uh, do you know if he, if, if Reagan ever discussed movies in his letters, if it, you know, with his old cronies and that is an interesting, you know, thing. I, you know, I'm not. Do, 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 did he write letters? I mean, I don't know for oh, sure. Oh yeah, and I think there is a collection of them. Well, then, then there's there's nothing in the in that in that collection um, that I'm aware of. Um, you would think I think he would use Jerry it. Lewis about what he's watching. No, I think that he would call them up. I mean, they they would call they would they would schmooze on the phone. I think that that's that would have been more likely rather than I mean a letter he sent a congratulatory, you know, telegram or have somebody somebody write a uh, uh, you know write a letter. I, I think that he was more you know like would have talked. That's, that's my that's my sense of it. He did talk to people. Did talk to Clint. Saw, so, you know, they screened a, a, one of his movies, Firefox, for example. And he did, they did have a 20-minute com phone conversation. And actually, then the Army got it. You know, Firefox, if you've ever seen it, it's the, the most insane movie. There's the Russians have, 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 have come up with a kind of, you know, jet bomber that works on mental telepathy or something like that. <laughs> and, they, and they have to, the, 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 the Army has to send, like, the one, you know, jet pilot who's fluent in Russian you know, parachute them into Moscow to like steal this, and it's Clint Eastwood, you know, like. <laughs> and so, uh, and so the army then did get interested in some kind of like strange. I, it wasn't mental telepathy, but but some kind of weird way of you know brainwaves. I I don't know exactly, but you know, it, it was after he saw the movie. So, <laughs> I you know, anyway, that's. But uh, I have a question yeah. that goes away from Reagan. Good. But I'm interested that um, he and his wife watched alone. And now we can stream movies and we watch movies mm -hmm. alone. So how important is it, do you think, to watch movies with a group of people as opposed to solo? Well, definitely it's different to watch movies with an audience. I mean, there's no, no question about that. I mean, people have been able to watch movies in their home you know, for uh, uh, since the early '80s, you know, with uh, uh, VCRs. Uh, so I don't know that streaming is any different. I mean, the, the thing that's different is that you can watch it on your phone, I guess. Um, but the Reagans watched. They didn't watch it. It wasn't just the two of them. They, it was them and their court, their courtier. I mean, their. I, I don't know how else to explain. You know, these. You know, their entourage. Thank you. Their entourage. You know, it's an adoring, adoring crowd. I mean, it was very safe. Uh, 
I mean, Nancy did have a pal whose name I'm forgetting now, a hair, a, uh, an interior designer from, from, from Beverly Hills, who was there an awful lot and um, uh, was probably a big movie fan, you know, and they probably liked to dish, you know, and the whole thing. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I think that, I, I don't know that they would have, that streaming would have made any difference to them. They did have a VCR. They, they, Jack Valenti sent them one. Uh, so that they, you know, like a high-end VCR, so that they could watch, you know, uh, uh, and, and we don't know what they watch necessarily on that, because he didn't always put that down in his diary. I have a quick question. Thank you for the very informative talk, by the way. Um, so, uh, in Back to the Future, um, when the film starts, it seems like the main focus is on Marty trying to, like, change his family life, and he has this, you know, it's, it's really not that bad of a life, but they make it seem like it is, like it's something needs to change, like he has a crappy mm. car and by the end he needs to have a nice shiny new truck and yeah. his parents are miserable and fighting and everything like that. But in reality, most of our lives are like that, you know, and, and we're not, we don't have a time machine at our disposal to change the parts of our life that we don't like, but he does, you know. Um, so I was sort of wondering, um, is the real nuclear nightmare of the 80s actually the family <laughs> and why is Reagan so focused on the concept of the family as opposed to, you know, trying to end the war? Like, you, you've, you mentioned um, eventually he gets more interested in ending the Cold War, but that seems to be based off of something that he watched in the movies. So I, I was just wondering about that sort of distinction there. Well, you know, I mean, Reagan's family was basically him and um, his second wife, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nancy. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem like anything now. But uh, but Reagan was the was the first, you know, divorced, you know, uh, uh, president. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, you know that had been a, had been a big deal. I mean, he had uh, two adopted children with his first wife, Jane Wyman, who you know sometimes he couldn't even recognize. It's really kind of pathetic. I mean, you know, like he had to one of the boy, you know, Michael Reagan had to like remind him, you know, who he was. At, at some function, and um, he had some kind of relationship with with uh, his two children, with Nancy. Although I think mo she was, you know, more hands-on as as a parent. So he's no model of you know like uh, of, of of you know family values, at least as they were imagined. But that doesn't matter because he was into these things as they are imagined. I mean, there were many ways in which he was contradictory. He didn't go to church all that much. I mean, uh, uh, he didn't love small town life. He left and went to Hollywood, you know, like the flesh pots of Hollywood, the first opportunity. I mean, he loved it there. So, um, back to the few. If, if 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 he was if he was talking about family values and so on, that's really like a political thing. And um, I think that back back to the future is. Uh, it's not so much that. Um, uh, not only that the family is is problematic, it's that uh, that 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 things seemed like you know like they would would have been so much better somehow in the fifties, and if that could be, you know, played forward into the into the eighties, that would improve his life and everybody's life. And I think that that's kind of a a, a trope in in eighties movies, you know, the sort of superimposition of the fifties over the eighties, or the glamorization of the of the 50s. I'm not sure if this is, if this is answering no, yeah, your, your, your question, but that's what I think is going on there. Thanks. Yeah. 
Do you think 10 years from now we'll be able to say that the current film output is reflecting our times, or has it become too much about mass consumer product? Well, I think that you know, there's always going to be a, uh, you know, all movies are about their own time. I mean, I think that that's, you know, I mean, the simplest thing to say, there, there are no, uh, there's no such thing really as a period film. And without going into too deeply, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people realize that uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about uh, 2019, at least as much as it's about 1969. Um, the, 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 the real question is whether these, these movies will, will amount to much. I mean, they just may be footnotes and, and, and the really, you know, lasting uh, culture will be, about, uh, will be about something else. I mean, I can say that I'm, I'm, I do not plan to write any more books like this. <laughs> so, but that's, I'm just speaking for myself. Um, I've noticed in some of the films in the series that uh, there are characters who are kind of these wandering types, or like, I want to say like homeless, but kind of aimlessness, like Jack Bridges' character in Carter's Way, or Pee Wee Herman <laughs> in mm-hmm. Pee Wee's Big Adventure, or um, yeah. even even Marty McFly. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know if you talk about this in your in your book, but could you speak to that a little bit, maybe? Well, I think that. Uh, um, not not Marty McFly so much, but the uh, the characters in Cutter's Way and also Pee Wee and also you know like uh, uh, the the characters in uh, uh, in River's Edge and 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 maybe you know um, are you know uh, uh, fringe figures and um, that makes them by their very nature they're out, they're outside of the uh, uh, the hegemony which was advanced by most 80s films they're critical it's critical in some way i mean you know peewee is a fascinating uh, um uh you know manifestation of 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 the time uh you know i mean i, I actually think that his tv show is is i mean i i don't want to scare anybody away from the movie which is very interesting but i think that the, that the, that the, that the tv show is to me much more culturally significant and that it but that it's up there with with blue velvet and also I talk about uh, uh, Watchmen the uh, the graphic novel is I see these things as like really great examples of a kind of uh, uh, dissident culture that sort of developed in spite of itself you know in in the mass mass media in, in the in the in the 80s uh, but you know whenever somebody's on the on the margins they're outside of like the great uh, you know new morning in, uh, in, in America, so, and would be significant for that reason. I want to thank you for your courage to tell it like it really was. Oh. I'm a student, I was a student at Berkeley in the 60s. I was tear gassed by a military helicopter that he sent while we were peacefully demonstrating, surrounded constantly every single day by the um, National Guard. And he would go on TV every single night and act like he was your grandfather and lie like a rug. And the press did not hold him accountable. He would lie. I mean, the day James Rector was shot and blinded and eventually died, he said, oh, today was just another peaceful day on campus. And nobody called him on it. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. 
You also said, if there's going to be a bloodbath, let's get it over with. Oh, no, yeah. I call them the murderers. I won't. Yeah. I don't call them by name. I won't yeah. say their names out loud. Yeah. They didn't say the word AIDS for eight years. Yeah, yeah. They took away all the funding for HIV research yeah. and help, and um, I won't fly into the airport either. Okay. <laughs> 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 all right. I think we'll end on that note. Okay. So, thanks. Uh, so thanks again, Jim. Thank you. Such a pleasure for me, Dennis. Thank you. been listening to the film at lincoln center podcast our opening music is by steelism you can subscribe on itunes stitcher and spotify film at lincoln center is a nonprofit arts organization based in new york city and supported by individuals just like you for 50 years we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals series retrospectives and new releases the publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.